Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, April 20th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. India is about to become the world's most populous country. A bipartisan group in the U.S. House proposes a debt ceiling plan. Kim Jong-un orders the launch of a North Korean spy satellite. The U.S. charges four Americans and three Russians in a malign influence campaign. Mitch McConnell says the GOP won't help replace Dianne Feinstein on a key committee. British police arrest a French publisher. Chinese Australians report a drop in racist incidents. 64 million Americans face daily spikes in harmful pollution. Netflix limits password sharing in the U.S. And the cat-killing contest for kids is axed in New Zealand. In our top story, according to the U.N., India is set to become the world's most populous country. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Outlook India, News 18, The Syaset Daily, Mint, and Reuters. According to a report released by the United Nations Population Fund, or UNFPA, on Wednesday, India is set to overtake China to become the world's most populous country by mid-2023. The UNFPA's State of World Population Report estimates India's population at 1.4286 billion against China's 1.4257 billion. The data shows India has a higher fertility rate and a much younger population with 68% of people falling in the age group of 15 to 64, while China has an aging workforce and low birth rates. However, the PRC outpaces India in terms of life expectancy, 82 to 74 years of age for women and 76 to 71 for men. This marks the first time India has ranked at the top of the UN list of most populous countries since the UNFPA began collecting population data in 1950. Meanwhile, India has not conducted a census since 2011, though its annual population growth has repeatedly averaged 1.2% in the past decade, which means there is no recent official data on its population. Eric, thank you for starting us off with those facts. We're going to start off our first round of narrative spins from Times of India with a narrative A. Being the world's most populous country does not herald bad news for India. The South Asian powerhouse has a huge potential to boost the economy and drive the nation toward progress and innovation. Instead of triggering anxiety or creating alarm, the rising population must symbolize progress, development, and aspirations. Narrative B coming from Economic Times. There are social and economic consequences of becoming the world's most populous nation. Apart from ensuring that comprehensive and equitable services are available to everyone, India needs to keep expanding and create enough employment, housing, and basic amenities to sustain its increasing population. Otherwise, it could just as swiftly become a demographic liability and an environmental ecological disaster. And a narrative C by the United Nations Population Fund. Rather than fixing on the effect of the rising population, India and the world should focus on giving women more power to exercise bodily autonomy to shore up demographic resilience. Adopting policies aimed at raising, lowering, or maintaining fertility rates 
has the potential to erode women's rights, which is why we must radically rethink how we talk about and plan for a sustainable future. There's a nerd narrative as well for this story. It says there's a 50% chance that the world population will be at least 9.62 billion on December 31st of 2050, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. News out of Washington and the U.S. debt ceiling, where a bipartisan House group has unveiling a plan to avoid default. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Fox News, Axios, Bloomberg, New York Times, and the New York Post. The Bipartisan House Problem Solvers Caucus, led by Representatives Brian Fitzpatrick, the Republican from Pennsylvania, and Josh Gottheimer, the Democrat from New Jersey, on Wednesday released a one-page blueprint for raising the debt ceiling, providing an alternative to the GOP plan. Attempting to avoid a first-ever default on U.S. debt if the House and President Biden fail to strike a deal, the moderates are calling for the suspension of the debt ceiling through year-end to allow the budget and appropriation cycle to be completed. The draft framework would also establish an independent commission to recommend a package to stabilize the debt and deficit, adopt controls for the 2024 federal budget, and change the budget process to require annual reports and a presidential mid-year budget update. It's very unlikely, however, that this proposal could be enacted by June, when the U.S. could face a default, without the consent of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, the Republican from California, who was working to garner support to pass his own plan through the House next week. On Monday, McCarthy pledged to pass legislation to raise the nation's debt ceiling into the next year on the condition that public spending is frozen at last year's levels, among other concessions which would most likely not pass in the Senate. Multiple reports emerged on Wednesday claiming that McCarthy proposed raising the debt ceiling up to $1.5 trillion in legislation whose details are yet to be revealed but likely include at least some spending cuts. The U.S. national debt is currently around $31.7 trillion. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Town Hall. While Republicans are sympathetic to Americans' financial struggles, Biden continues to hide from the issue and refuse to negotiate. It's time for the president to lead by coming to the table with McCarthy and for Democrats to acknowledge their reckless spending got the U.S. into this predicament and must be reined in. Tying the debt ceiling to spending levels is the only way to make the country fiscally responsible. And of course, you can't have a Republican narrative without it followed by a Democratic narrative. And this one's brought to us by Alternet. Republicans are playing a dangerous game of roulette with the economy, and Americans are going to feel the pain if they don't relent. Speaker McCarthy is pushing an extreme wish list that increases costs for hardworking families without actually reducing the deficit. Spending cuts for the future won't do anything to affect what the U.S. has already spent, and claims to the contrary promote a delusion that will ultimately lead to a default. And there's a cynical narrative coming from ABC News. This government paralysis is just one of the many symptoms of a nation plagued by partisan games, with leaders more concerned with tearing each other down than building the country up. As both sides refuse to compromise, 
the U.S. is creeping closer to the edge of an economic crisis. Something must be done to end this deadlock. Something must be done to end this deadlock. And there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 5% chance the U.S. will default on its sovereign debt before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. When did so- sovereign debt? Who, what Do we owe some kings money or something like that? <laughs> I guess so. North Korea's Kim orders the launch of a first spy satellite. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, DW, Korea Times, France 24, The Economic Times, and First Post. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un announced that his country had completed the development of its first military spy satellite and ordered its launch to proceed at an undisclosed date, the state-run KCNA news agency reported on Wednesday. Given what he described as threats by the U.S. and South Korea, he ordered the deployment of several reconnaissance satellites during a visit to North Korea's space agency on Tuesday and declared the expansion of intelligence-gathering capabilities a national priority. Citing the analysts at South Korea's Sejong Institute, the Korea Times reported on Wednesday that Pyongyang is expected to stick to its plan, initially announced in December 2022, to launch the satellite this month in a bid to bolster the country's reconnaissance capability. The KCNA report comes after Pyongyang last week claimed to have test-fired a new solid-propellant intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, with experts pointing to significant technological similarities linking ICBM technology to space launch capabilities. During his Tuesday announcement, The North Korean leader claimed that Washington is turning South Korea into an advanced base for aggression, as the U.S. and South Korea are ramping up joint military drills aimed at bolstering deterrence against North Korea's nuclear buildup. North Korea successfully put its first Earth observation satellite into orbit in 2012 and its second in 2016, prompting U.N. sanctions. However, neither of the two Earth observation satellites reportedly succeeded in sending imagery back to North Korea. Eric, thank you. We've got an establishment critical narrative provided by Press TV. North Korea's development of a spy satellite, along with its first test launch of a solid-fueled ICBM, is the direct result of ongoing U.S. military threats against the nation under the guise of strengthening regional security. By using South Korea for its aggressive imperial agenda, Washington is threatening North Korea's sovereignty and territorial integrity. If the U.S. proceeds on its path of escalation, North Korea reserves the right to resort to using preemptive military force to ensure its security. CNN gives us a pro-establishment narrative for this story. North Korea's spy satellite, together with the regime's frequent missile tests, only underscores the mounting threat the North poses to South Korea and regional stability. But Kim's saber-rattling will only strengthen South Korea's alliance with the U.S. and its will to defend its territorial integrity. Kim understands only the language of power, and stepped-up U.S. deterrence is the only way to protect South Korea from the aggressor, while forcing Pyongyang back to the negotiating table. You know, Eric, he's going about it all wrong. You don't announce your spy satellite. You don't be like, oh, hey, everybody, I'm putting a spy satellite up. You know, I, I think he's kind of got it backwards. He does. And he's got too much time on his hands. He really does. Too much time on his hands? He needs He needs to find a hobby. I think he's taken uh, a model rocket building 
hobby to like a whole new level. He's taking it to extreme. Yeah, you're right. Maybe, uh, I don't know, model car racing. Like good old-fashioned slot racing. That'd be good for Or maybe crocheting. Crocheting. Such a calming and peaceful thing. Yeah. Then he could make nuclear mittens. Nuclear mittens. Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. The U.S. charges four Americans and three Russians in a malign influence campaign. And here are the facts as agreed upon by MSN, I-24 News, Department of Justice, and Al Jazeera. The U.S. Department of Justice on Tuesday filed new charges against four Americans and three Russians for allegedly working on behalf of Russia's Federal Security Service, the FSB, to conduct a multi-year foreign malign influence campaign in the United States. The superseding indictment from a federal grand jury in Tampa, Florida, adds further charges against Moscow resident Alexander Viktorovich Ionov, previously indicted in July, and names FSB officers Alexei Borisovich Sukolodov and Igor Sergeyevich Popov for the first time. Allegedly conspiring with the FSB officers, Ionov is accused of recruiting Florida residents, quote, to participate in the influence campaign and act as agents of Russia to the United States. The U.S. citizens charged were Omali Yashidala, founder of the African People's Socialist Party, or the APSP, and its subsidiary to the Uhuru Movement, alongside two of the group's members, Penny Joanne Hess and Jess Neville, also named was Augustus Romain, founder of the APSP spinoff in Georgia called Black Hammer. The four were charged with acting as unregistered Russian agents and face up to five years in prison. According to the DOJ, the Russian defendants recruited, funded, and directed U.S. political groups to act as unregistered illegal agents of the Russian government and sow discord and spread pro-Russian propaganda. It also alleged that the Russian defendants supervised a candidate in the 2019 election cycle for the city of St. Petersburg in Florida, with a view of extending the plot to the presidential elections. In a separate case, the DOJ also charged Russian citizen Natalia Borlanova of acting illegally as a foreign agent in the U.S. She allegedly conspired with an FSB officer to recruit U.S. citizens from academic and research institutions to travel to Russia to participate in a public diplomacy program called Meeting Russia. Thank you, Adam. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Newsweek. Russia has previously been found to be involved in attempts to sow discord and interfere in U.S. elections. The Department of Justice is right to take swift action and bring the alleged perpetrators of this latest attempt to undermine American democracy to justice. And The Spectator is going to follow that up with an establishment critical narrative. Past claims of alleged Russian interference in U.S. elections have been massively overblown to suit a political agenda. It's likely that the same is true of these latest allegations. And a nerd narrative says there's a 23% chance that there will be a U.S.-Russia war before 2050, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure this is the outline for Season 5 of The Americans. I think it is, too. But you know what I say. What do you say? I say they need to wrap up this current war first before they start a new one. That's right. One war at a time, people. Only one war at a time. That's right. There's nothing worse than wartime ADD. Mitch McConnell says the GOP won't help replace Dianne Feinstein on a key committee. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Forbes, Independent, PBS NewsHour, Reuters, and Associated Press. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, alongside other senior Republicans, signaled opposition to any attempts by Democrats to temporarily replace Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, on the Senate Judiciary Committee as she recovers from shingles. Feinstein, 89, has been absent from Washington since February with a condition leading Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, to propose Ben Cardin, Democrat of Maryland, take her place until she recovers. Such a decision would require at least 10 Republicans to clear the filibuster threshold. Feinstein issued a statement last week asking to be temporarily replaced on the committee, which requires her presence to secure a Democratic majority and easily confirm President Biden's judicial nominees. McConnell stated that Republicans would not defy Senate norms to enable Democrats to force through their very worst nominees. Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, the leading GOP member of the Judiciary Committee, also objected to Schumer's proposal. Schumer would not answer any questions about whether Feinstein should resign over poor health. Without Feinstein's presence, Democrats only hold a majority in the Senate by a single vote at a 50-49 margin. This causes concern for Democrats as critical votes on key issues like the debt ceiling draw closer. Some Democrats, including fellow Californians Ro Khanna, Democrat of California, and Pete Aguilar, Democrat of California, have called on Feinstein to step down. Feinstein has already stepped down from multiple leadership positions. Eric, thank you for the facts. The Federalist has a Republican narrative spin for this story. It's not surprising that Feinstein is no longer capable to perform her duties as a senator due to her age. There is no reason Republicans should cooperate with Democrats on their judicial agenda. There's no precedent for such a temporary replacement, and to give way due to moral duty would be extraordinarily dangerous in potentially allowing the Biden administration's judicial agenda to proceed. CNN gives us a Democratic narrative. Republicans have made it clear that they will not let Feinstein be replaced, even for a short period of time, as McConnell continues with his intention to exploit the befuddling Senate rulebook and prohibit judicial nominations from passing. Whether Feinstein resigns or is replaced, Republicans will no doubt continue their obstructionist ways. And the Daily Beast is going to wrap this story up with a cynical narrative. Republicans and Democrats are attempting to take the moral high ground on the matter of Feinstein's absence, which just so happens to align with their political desires. The reality is both sides claim the other is playing politics in what is a difficult and messy situation. They've got that uh, that single vote margin. The Democrats are, are taking up their own vote with regards to Feinstein. They're calling it the shingle vote. <laughs> Police in the United Kingdom are criticized over a French publisher being arrested. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, Daily Mail, The Times, The Telegraph, and The Washington Post. The UK's Metropolitan Police have come under scrutiny for detaining Ernest Moret, a French publisher, under the terms of the UK Terrorism Act. According to authorities, the foreign rights manager of Paris-based publisher Editions Les Fabriques was arrested for obstruction. He was detained on his way to the London Book Fair after traveling to St. Pancras Railway Station on the Eurostar. The publisher was released on Tuesday. 
A diplomatic row broke out over Moret's detention after the plainclothes officers approached him to ask about his participation in protests against President Emmanuel Macron in France. His lawyer, Richard Perry, said the issue came down to Moret refusing to reveal the personal identification numbers and passcodes to his electronic devices, which he did, quote, on point of principle. Editions La Fabrique has labeled the police action an assault on the freedom of expression and another manifestation of the slide toward repressive and authoritarian measures. Macron has faced a turbulent set of protests since he used executive powers to push through pension reforms, raising the age of retirement from 62 to 64. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from The Guardian. The Met Police have undermined freedom of expression and journalists internationally should be concerned. The increasingly repressive approach being taken by the French government is increasingly problematic. And now it seems that the British government is complicit, even utilizing draconian legislation to help drown out those voices dissenting from Macron. More must be done to scrutinize police actions. And Breitbart has a narrative B. Besides the concerning authoritarianism of this action, it's disgraceful that the Met is concerning itself with publishers, even detaining people it cannot charge, while lax border control is allowing genuinely dangerous criminals to enter the UK. London's anti-terror legislation should be used to tackle the mounting terrorist threat, not to unjustifiably arrest an individual who wasn't protesting against the British government. This story has also produced a nerd narrative. It says there's a 20% chance that Emmanuel Macron will cease being president of France before 2027. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. When's their next election? I don't know, but it could be by assassination. Do they know you? Because <laughs> I, I know we were we had a little texting thing going on where you were you were unhappy about Macron, I know, but I mean have you been talking with Metaculus? We, we, we. Oh, you have to go to the bathroom. I'm sorry. According to a poll, Chinese Australians report less racism and greater belonging. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Guardian, South China Morning Post, and the Sydney Morning Herald. The number of Chinese Australians who reported being called offensive names dropped to 21% in 2022 compared to 31% in 2020, according to a new poll from the Sydney-based Lowy Institute. The Lowy Institute has conducted annual polls to gauge Chinese Australians' opinions of the country since Australia and China fell on bad terms at the onset of the COVID pandemic in 2020. Chinese Australians also reported reduced rates of being physically threatened due to their heritage last year, with the figure falling from 18% to 14%. An overwhelming majority of 92% also rated Australia as a very good place to live, up from 77% in 2020. Meanwhile, respondents were split over whether the AUKUS Defense Technology Partnership between Australia, the U.S., and the U.K. made Australia safer with 27% saying it does and 26% saying it doesn't. Comparatively, 52% of the Australian population said AUKUS made the country safer. There are 1.4 million Australians of Chinese ancestry, 5.5% of the population making the demographic increasingly important in both state and federal elections. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. We've got a Narrative A provided by the Lowy Institute. 
Australia has done an excellent job managing the delicate diplomatic tensions with China, while considering the daily experience of its citizens with Chinese heritage. Although COVID put a strain on Australia's relationship with China, misplaced racial animosity from the pandemic seems to be in the past. Narrative B coming from ABC. Although it's promising that Chinese Australians are reporting less racism compared to years past, there are still far too many instances of racially motivated abuse. Discrimination should never be tolerated, and 21% of Chinese Australians reporting that they were called offensive names is unacceptable. Australia must continue its progress toward equality and fair treatment. A record 64 million Americans face daily spikes in deadly particle pollution. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Benzinga, and CNN. According to the American Lung Association's State of the Air report released Wednesday, unhealthy air pollution levels from 2019 to 2021 affected more than one-third of U.S. residents, 17.6 million fewer people than the ALA's last report. With nearly 120 million people facing unhealthy air quality, 56% are people of color, who are 64% more likely than white people to live in a county with a failing grade for at least one of the ALA's air quality measures, which are ground-level ozone air pollution, animal particle pollution, and short-term spikes in particle pollution. While around 25% more counties received a grade of A for lower levels of ozone pollution, the report said more than 100 million people live in counties that get an F for ozone smog, with 10 of the 25 most polluted cities in California. New York City, Chicago, and Hartford were the only three listed east of the Mississippi River. While progress has been made regarding the overall number of people facing unhealthy air quality, a record high of 63.7 million people face, quote, daily spikes in deadly particle pollution, which is the most ever reported under the current national standard. Alongside racial differences, more than 18 million residents in western states live in counties with three failing grades and the worst 25 counties for short-term particle pollution were all located in the western U.S. Particle pollution is a mix of solid and liquid droplets that come in the form of dirt, dust, soot, or smoke. They are produced by coal and natural gas-fired power plants as well as cars, agriculture, unpaved roads, construction sites, and wildfires. These particles can reach the lungs and bloodstream and cause illness such as cancer, strokes, or heart attacks. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. The first spin is the left narrative coming from Forbes. Climate change and air pollution have long proven detrimental to the nation as a whole and to people of color more specifically. The only difference is that today, reports like this provide concrete evidence of how these communities endure disproportionately higher rates of negative health effects. While both California and the Biden administration are working to mitigate these risks at the state and national levels, more must be done to transition the U.S. away from fossil fuels and toward clean energy sources. And that's followed with a right narrative provided by AMAC. While liberal elites pat themselves on the back for fighting racism and climate change simultaneously, they, of course, will be free from the negative consequences their policies will have on the poor particularly people of color. 
Investing in natural gas and nuclear energy could also help the U.S. reach its 90% renewable electric grid goal while saving people money. But the left is more concerned with pursuing its power-based ideology. When these policies fail, they will blame racism again and continue gaslighting Americans into voting Democrat. In our next story, Netflix plans a U.S. rollout of limits on password sharing. And here are the facts agreed upon by BBC News, Associated Press, Reuters, Forbes, and Axios. In a letter to Investors Tuesday, Netflix announced it would roll out its plan for limiting subscribers' ability to share passwords outside of their households in the U.S. by July. Limits on password sharing have been trialed in other countries. The announcement comes at the same time Netflix announced a 1.75 million increase in subscribers for the first quarter of 2023, which outperformed analysts' predictions but was historically low for a Q1 result. Netflix shares dropped 11% in after-hours trading in response to the report before gaining 1.4%. First quarter earnings per share hit $2.88 with a revenue of $8.162 billion, roughly in line with analyst predictions from Refinitiv. Although it's anticipating an increase in cancellations in response to the new password-sharing rules, Netflix also believes revenues will benefit from monetizing the 100 million users it says currently share passwords. This follows Netflix's previous attempt to increase its subscriber base and revenues by instituting different pricing tiers for HD viewing and offering an ad-supported option. Netflix also announced it would end its 25-year-old mail-in DVD business in September, which accounts for 0.5% of its revenue, but was costing the company because it had to continue buying new DVDs. All right, Eric, we've got a narrative A provided by The Verge. Never bet against Netflix has always been a disruptor in the entertainment industry. With the way it distributed DVDs and it increased the prominence of streaming, Netflix changed Hollywood forever. Now it's adding games to its service and cracking down on password sharing. Together with the success of its ad-based service, these moves should keep Netflix a powerhouse for years to come. Narrative B coming from New York Times. After failing to meet Wall Street's expectations in the first quarter of the year, Netflix will face even more obstacles in the coming months, including a looming writer's strike, competition from other streaming services, and a misstep in its attempt to create live programming. In order to succeed, Netflix has to prove it can meet these challenges and find ways, beyond the ad-based tier and the password-sharing crackdown, to innovate and grow. Do you have your own Netflix account, Eric, or are you sharing somebody's? Uh, I'm going to have to go ahead and get mine now. And in our final story today, New Zealand cancels child cat-killing contest amid outcry. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Insider, New York Times, Independent, ITV News, and The Guardian. On Tuesday, organizers of an annual hunting competition in New Zealand canceled a children's feral cat-killing event following massive backlash from animal rights groups. The North Canterbury Hunting Competition, an annual pest-killing event on New Zealand's South Island to raise money for a local school and swimming pool, had announced a new category this year for children under 14 to kill the most feral cats for a top prize of 250 New Zealand dollars 
equivalent to 155 U.S. dollars. The children were reportedly warned not to kill pets, or else they would be expelled from the competition. Moreover, any children who produced dead microchipped cats would have their entire entry disqualified. New Zealand Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or the SPCA, in Canterbury criticized the event, arguing someone's pet may be killed, as it's difficult to tell the difference between a feral, stray, or frightened domestic cat based on appearance. The competition, which sees hundreds of children and adults compete to kill wild pigs, deer, and hares, is conducted by a group of volunteers each year to raise funds for the Rotherham School. In 2022, the children, who often use air rifles, killed 427 animals, primarily possums, hares, and rabbits. Those in favor of reducing the cat population argue that the estimated 1.2 million domestic cats in New Zealand, and more than double that for feral cats, are a risk to birds. The Royal Forest and Bird Protection Society says feral cats kill 1.1 million native birds every year, and tens of millions of non-native birds. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from RNZ. Feral cats are predators and must be treated as pests as they decimate wildlife and biodiversity in New Zealand. Apart from regularly preying on endangered native birds, lizards, bats, and insects, they feed on young kiwi, invertebrates, and frogs. The planned cat-killing competition must be reinstated as it could teach children how to manage and cull invasive species responsibly. And we're going to wrap things up with a narrative B provided by the New Zealand Herald. There are more humane methods to deal with New Zealand's nefarious feral cats, including poisoning and trapping. Sending children off to hunt feral cats in a competition teaches young minds that it's okay to kill animals and that cruelty is acceptable. There are numerous ways to raise money. Causing pain and distress to wild species shouldn't be one. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, April 20th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.